This is Ground Control. Ground Control. This is Ground Control with Dina Eden. Stephen Ford. This is Ground Control with Sarah Adams. Recorded at Groundwork Co-working Space in downtown New Bedford, Mass. Hello and welcome to Ground Control, New Bedford Now edition. I have a very uh, special guest today, someone who uh, I've worked with a, a little bit over the last year, Nick LeBlanc, uh, writer of renown, local <laughs> publisher of Domesticated Primate, as the publishing company's name. And uh, Nick and I have been involved in the book festivals that we hold here at Groundwork, some poetry readings, and always been a pleasure to work with. I love reading his stuff. And let's start there, Nick. Sure. Uh, let's talk about uh, your books, uh, your writing first. Um, what what, uh, what titles have you got now available for uh, purchase? Well, of my own yeah. titles, yeah, I've, you're right. uh, I've done one that was called Dinosauria Ridicula, which is a collection of kind of mm-hmm. uh, poetry mostly, some short pieces, but I'm... That one's actually out of print now. That one I've I did the first initial run, and that was kind of the plan with that. So that's mm-hmm. done. Uh, the second thing I did was something called False Prophets. Right. Prophets with an F, mm-hmm. you know, implying money. Collection of short stories, poetry, and uh, nonfiction essays, mm-hmm. which I called Lectures to No One because they yeah. were structured much more similarly to a lecture than an essay in the sense of they're written conversationally. And mm-hmm. I didn't edit them initially. Only did a proofread before we published it. You know, to kind of preserve that. Uh, yeah. They read well, yeah. Thank read, you. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed those. Yeah. And then uh, am I probably the piece I'm most proud of to this day is this short novella I wrote called Other People. Right. And um, I also wrote a poetry collection after that called Ouroboros, mm-hmm. and I'm currently working on a full-length novel, as well as a few other little projects. Yeah. Okay. Full-length novel. Okay, that's yeah. ambitious because you're doing a lot of other things, which we'll get to. But I'll tell listeners that they can pick up other people at Hippo, 741 Purchase Street. Mm-hmm. It's available there now, and some of your other titles too. Yeah, I think all of them are. Oh, and there's actually one other piece I forgot too. I did a collaboration with a um, local photographer named Brandon Cabral. Oh, right. Yeah. And um, I wrote a one-act play based on some of his images that he shoots on uh, expired film. Yeah. yeah. And so we we. Uh, put together a book that's also available at Right, yeah, you did a special installation here mm-hmm. at the October Book Festival here at Groundwork. It was really cool, and yeah, Brandon's work is really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love his stuff. Yeah, yeah, I follow him on Instagram like so many other people do, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, it's nice stuff. He's a at Cabralism. At Cabralism, okay, so there you go. People can follow him. Are you on uh, Instagram? I am, it's Nick D. LeBlanc. Nick D. LeBlanc, But my there pictures are far less interesting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Domesticated primate. Mm-hmm. That's your baby, mm-hmm. your publishing company. Uh, how's, how long has it been? A little over a year? A little over a year. A little over a year, yeah. okay. Yeah, and what title? Uh, you've got a, well, you have a whole bunch of titles at mm-hmm. domesticatedprimate.com, right? Yep. yep. Okay. And uh, people can also find links to this stuff, you know, at our blog, newbedfordcoworking.com. Uh, we also have, uh, it's on New Bed- um NewBedfordNow.com. You can find stories about domesticated primate. Mm-hmm. And uh, how's that going? It's a lot. I mean, that's pretty ambitious. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's going well right now. Besides those initial things that I published for myself and the collaborations, I also published a hundred and twenty-ish page poem by a local poet, who in this writing he wanted to be referred to as Josh Vidal, but um, that's out actually available at Hippo as well. Right. Uh, and right now in the works, I have a uh, 
horror story collection by a guy out of Easton that's written kind of similarly to H.P. Lovecraft stuff. Oh, okay. um, it's kind of old school horror, more so than new school, and there's a little conceit to it that these are discovered tales, you know, found them in an attic kind of thing, wrote a prologue. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's kind of the conceit to that. Um, working on a children's book, which is something I didn't think I'd do with an author, local author who wrote about a crab in South Dartmouth. Um, I'm working on a poetry collection from a uh, young woman who wanted to write poems and explications of those poems. And it's all about being in your 20s as a woman and kind of exploring a lot of her ideas and her experiences and trying to relate those. And on top of that, there's one more piece where I'm working with a local artist, Carl Simmons, who had done a documentary um, a few years ago. And um, we're doing sort of a companion piece to it that we're developing now. Nice. Well, I interviewed Carl just uh, earlier today, and uh, yeah, we spoke about another project he's working on, and that would be perfect. Uh, yeah, he's update. an enigma. <laughs> oh, he sure is. He's a <laughs> great guy. And uh, he talked about updating Daniel Rickinson's History of New Bedford. Yeah. That could be a publishing project. Um, the publishing industry these days, you know, on a, on a regional level, um, is it easier to get into with the technology? Is, is it harder? Is it about the same? Well, I know just about nothing when it comes to it. <laughs> okay. So my, this really came out of just a passion yeah. project, and I'm actually running it. I, I was a musician for a long time, and I had a little bit of experience with, um, like, record companies and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually kind of running this more like a record label than a publishing company where I'm, I'm not taking the rights of people's books. They keep their rights. I do an initial investment on a run. After that, we You're figure it out from there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're not. It's a. Uh, the goal really <clears throat> was to produce creative, original, and unique things, and kind of with you know a more local focus because I'm from this area and I support this area heavily, and um, that's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. So the idea is more regionally, and then we kind of branch out as we can personally, and we try to keep it very. Uh, individualized and personal or you know if someone reaches out to us they can potentially have a conversation with the author or right. whatever so that's cool and you uh, you distribute them locally and sell yeah. online too? locally yeah. sell online okay. and then there's a few in other places around too like there's some a shop in New York has a few of mine uh, somewhere in Philly too interesting uh, <laughs> we, we have to say God bless you to our to our wonderful technician Sarah Athanas, also the host of a podcast here on Ground Control, the Pushy Woman Podcast. She's suffering from a little allergy uh, epidemic here. Okay. You doing okay there? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> so um, uh, now. Being a publisher and a writer, how do you like balance that? Like, for instance, when do you know that it's time to work on your own stuff, and then when do you time when do you know it's time to turn that off and devote to the business of publishing? Mm. Is it I'm, just as the project demands? Yeah, kind of on yeah. a project basis, and as a creative person, when it's come to whatever I've been involved with, mm-hmm. I tend to do things. I can operate quickly and mm-hmm. manically where I, I can sit down and I can write an awful lot in a short amount of time and spit it out. Do you write every day? Not every day. No, you don't. No, no, but but no. I usually do something every day, whether it's play music or I do something creative to 
kind of keep it flowing. And okay. then there'll be one day when I'll dedicate many hours to it, or there'll be one day when I only dedicate an hour. And sometimes if I only dedicate an hour, I actually might get more done. Mm. It depends. Right. On, you know, I kind of, yeah. I try to give myself the space to have that um, give and take, you know, kind of go with the, the feeling. Mm. Okay. Uh, and uh, where do you draw your inspiration from for your writing? Ooh, that's a tough question. Yeah, that's a tough. Well, that's pretty. I know that's a, that's, <laughs> that's too good. broad. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah. I, I, I like that. Um, yeah. But I know it's like a lot. You know, some of it's intensely personal. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, you know some of the stuff, and you're okay with sharing that. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. worry too much about the sharing personal yeah. stuff thing because yeah. my my philosophy personally is that if individuals were a little more open with their experience and we kind of promoted communication. Um, and you know, without stigmatizing an individual's mm -hmm. experience, we might actually be able to get somewhere quicker than, mm. than kind of building up walls sure. that we have to help people volley over. I'd rather just mm. say exactly how I'm feeling. But then mm -hmm. again, you know, that's more some of the nonfiction stuff, but some of the fiction stuff, a lot of it comes from ideas or images or feelings mm -hmm. and kind of diving into that feeling or exploring that feeling or, um, just kind of, it's, it's, I almost think of it like surfing where I have these waves or these ideas that are kind of coming to me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll just kind of hop into one and see how far I get taken. Right. Okay. Yeah. Ride the wave. Um, uh, now that same philosophy that you bring to your own work, do you look for that in works that you may be looking to publish? I do, and yeah. when, I, when I do editing work for other people, not my book, but for other individuals, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I try to do editing, I call it content editing, mm -hmm. where the commas and the periods and the dashes, that stuff will come. And right, I have a few yeah. friends who edit with me who that's their specialty. They like to focus on those yeah, things. editing parties? I, not around. parties yeah. necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> that might be the latest party, yeah. I think. No, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, writers, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. A strange breed. <laughs> but, uh, so a lot of the time what I'll do is, I, whenever I edit something, I feel like I always send a, a large piece with it explaining that my edits and my, my pieces that I rip out or move around or change words mm -hmm. on people, is it's never about um, making something more my vision. It's more about me attempting to gather whatever it is the artist is putting out and then trying to help them shave away everything else that right. doesn't yeah. Well, that's, that's what really good editors do. I mean, there was, a, I forget the editor's name, but I know the writer's name. There was an uh, editor who really helped shape Raymond Carver's short stories. Mm -hmm. And he really almost was almost a co-creator, from what I understand, with a lot of his work. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. the challenge, the, the important part, I think, is having a conversation with the artist. Because someone like Raymond Carver, who's very specific and short, and mm -hmm. he's you know, kind of like the Hemingway school where it's right. minimalist, but then there'll be someone like David Foster Wallace, who's the maximalist, you know, uh, school. And I think it's a matter of understanding what the artist is trying to do. You know, if someone has an awkward turn of phrase or has something all crazy screwed up and it feels so out of place, the first thing I'll do is ask the artist, hey, was this your intention? You know, what is this bringing to the piece? And then we'll tear it apart or whatever from there. Well, we're all big readers here. Uh, last year, I asked everyone what their kind of like what, what was a book that influenced them. Sarah had mentioned *The Savage Detectives*, which is a great book. 
Um, who are your influences as a writer? Oh, I know, I'm sure they're numerous, but if you had to just pick like, you know, two or three. I would say probably my, I look at it more on what I learned from reading. Mm-hmm. I look at reading a book like having a conversation with someone mm-hmm. and that conversation, when you, know, when you speak to someone, sometimes someone's better speaking in metaphor than they are at telling you what's happening. So certain authors, I'll look at it as if they're telling me a story, but through, you know, whatever metaphor they're trying to do to explain that. And probably the most influential author on me who really changed my mind when it came to writing was Kurt Vonnegut initially. I first read his stuff and I said, oh my God, there's someone else out there who understands the sensibility. I don't feel crazy. And he was willing to say some harsh and weird and dark things, but he had a, a, a smirk to it. I remember this one, like on the back of a book, how it describes it. My friend and I always joked that he was called the laughing prophet of doom. And I always loved that. So he was very influential on the way I think. Uh, Thomas Pynchon was super influential. When, when I first tried to read him, like all nerds, the first book I tried to pick up was Gravity's Rainbow, which is like, like walking into the forest and saying, oh, I'm gonna go kill an elephant without a gun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty impossible. And so I worked my way backwards with him. Some of his more accessible stuff. And with him, once I figured out his humor, um, I learned a different type of humor. I learned that the narrator is there not to tell the story. The characters are there to tell the story. The narrator is there to give the context to what the characters are doing. And so that's, that's what I learned from him. And I learned that that's where his humor lies, where you may learn something from the narrator that the character doesn't give you. Then the character does something or says something that totally exposes the humor. It's a balancing act between the two. And Pynchon kind of taught me that. And if I had to pick a third, I wouldn't even say it's the author so much because there's a lot of influential authors, but a book, um, Steppenwolf by Herman Hesse. Oh, right. uh, when I read that book, I was floored by the philosophy <laughs> to imagine that that was written in the early 1900s and he's talking about something that feels like me today or like I felt in my life before. It, it was one of the most like straight to my soul feelings and yeah. that he made me think about timelessness. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. It's obviously, yeah, just the, the look on your face, I can tell it's had an impact on you. And uh, that, you know, that's really interesting. Do you hope to make that impact on other people? Um, right. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that would be great. I mean, that's yeah. like any person who writes their dream to have someone mm-hmm. say that. Um, but it's scary, uh, for me at least, where with my fiction more than my essays, because with, with a personal nonfiction essay, at the end of the day, I'll stand by anything I said. I'm not afraid to say that to anyone. Mm-hmm. But with fiction, it's a little different because you're kind of putting some humor, some jokes, or some risky ideas out there, and you're kind of expecting that the audience is going to understand that you're joking, or is going to understand your satire, or is going to understand whatever. So there's this unknown. So it's almost that you might say something in your writing, and it comes across as it could come across totally crass or wrong right, yeah. without the proper understanding. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely the context and everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's always a, uh, you know, and we live in such a hypersensitive age. You know, we really do this, you mm-hmm. know, with the, you know, polarization and, you know, the society right now. That's really, um, it, it, do you find that makes it easier to write or harder? I think it uh, unsettled. It gives it gives you more content to write about. Right. Yeah. It gives you more ideas to subvert. Yeah. And um, yeah. I don't know. It's there's there's a few very different things I find going on in society in that kind of theme where you have kind of a return to people. Well, not even a return. It's a 
it's a change from that early 90s political correctness stuff where now it seems more so that people aren't so much being politically correct as trying to be aware of other individuals' lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a lot of people who've just kind of been sick of being told how to live, that can come across as, you know, the school marm kind of stuff. So then they're reacting in a crazy way, which has been reflected potentially, especially politically right. at the politics, moment. So right, yeah. it's this weird divide, I yeah. think. What do you think, where do you think the writer's role falls into all of that? What is the role of the writer, you think, these days? I mean, you know. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I, uh, well, a lot of people say that the role of the writer is to not exist because the written word has been uh, distilled. Norman, Norman Mailer would disagree with you. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's been distilled down to if you write more than four paragraphs, you're, you know, you're not going to get a single set of eyes on you. But I think the goal of a writer, as well as the goal of almost any artist, is to tell their truth or to illuminate another truth right. or subvert a societal notion in an attempt to expose, you know, the the true humanistic like underpinnings of what's happening. You know, to say, hey, there's this might be some dirty human disgusting reason why we're doing these nice things or it's kind of just be the mirror, I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. Well there's plenty of opportunity these days because, you know, you, you, you uh, there are many options available for publishing books. Um, there are many options for publishing online, and you know there are some great resources. You know there are sites like Medium with long-form mm -hmm. journalism and you know, storytelling, which are really interesting. Um, I'd like now to have you read something from your work. Sure, that's okay. From other people, uh, let me have you pick something out. We have a copy here at Groundwork in the Groundwork Library that you, uh, I believe you left it for us after the New Bedford Book Festival. Mm -hmm. And gave me a personal copy too, which I thank you very much. Uh, no problem. Yeah. Like I said, you know, the goal with doing this is just to help art or to share art, you know? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, language. What can I or can't I say? Depending on the writing. Oh, um, we have a question for our, something you like. Okay. Yeah. We have a question for our sensor slash <laughs> technician. I think we can mark things as explicit if we have to. Okay. Yeah. Sound okay. loud, so yeah. yeah. This podcast will be rated NR or <laughs> adult only. I don't know. NC seventeen. That's what it is. I thought you were asking me some profound question about language. At oh, first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did too, actually. Yeah. I was like, ooh, he is putting Sarah on the spot. I don't know the answer. To that. <laughs> no, while you're looking through that, uh, I want to ask you, um, what I find it kind of interesting too is uh, you're a physics teacher. That's your day yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at your Bedford High School here. Bedford High, yeah. yeah. How does physics and literature like fit into your brain? Uh, do, uh, or how do you make that, or do they work together or separately? I think they work together. And that's what I imagine, yeah. But I'm a... One of my friends always, he likes to call me a polymath, but I like to call myself a guy who does things. You know, that's kind okay, of the, okay. it's the difference. But it, what it boils down to, I think, is that I look at almost any scholastic discipline or academic or whatever it is, artistic, all it is is language or a framework. And anything that you look at, whether it's physics or literature or music or farming or whatever, mm -hmm. all it does is teach you how to think. Because I personally believe that thinking, uh, yeah, I, that thinking I, is the you know 
pinnacle right. of human experience. Right. Yeah. So right. whether it's physics, which has <clears throat> made me think a lot about existence and the way that existence works, or whether it's literature, which has made me think about communication and imagery, all it is is just thinking in a different way, you know? Mm-hmm. And then le- forcing yourself to learn content, you right. know, as yeah, far as right, yeah. the math behind stuff or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, to learn the, you know, the facts. And but once, I, for me, because I, I, was, I was a mess in college. I, I was a high aptitude student who just didn't do anything. I couldn't get my stuff together, but... Yeah. You when spoke I, about that here, I think, during the soapbox social. Yeah, social. I had a yeah. crazy experience yeah. here when that happened. But uh, yeah. the, uh, it, it was realizing post-college that fact that allowed me to be better at learning things. Mm-hmm. So with physics, it's, um, it's, I look at it like teaching kids a language, kind of like literature, mm-hmm. in which they can better understand their environment. How do you like teaching? That's, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a love great it. profession. Yeah. I've done yeah. a bunch of strange jobs. I've worked for big corporations. I've worked at a butcher shop. I've yeah. worked on a farm. I've done all kinds of stuff. And teaching is the first thing that feels right, that I don't feel ashamed to be working for a corporation. Cool. And um, yeah. I feel like there's genuine progress nice. with, with kids. So. Yeah, yeah, nice. You know, uh, the Bedford school system is sometimes a controversial uh, subject, but it's, uh, from what I understand, it's making like steady improvement these days. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, I've been in the school system for two years, and even the time I've been there, I see an improvement. Right, yeah, you're at the high school. The um, best advice I can give anybody who has any curiosity about the school system mm-hmm. is go visit. Go oh, visit okay. yeah. and talk to see what you can do. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can do a tour. Maybe you can get in a classroom. Yeah. Talk to a teacher. Talk to some students, and you'll see that that um, at the basic level, there's a want to learn and there's a want to teach. Mm. And sometimes it's a matter of resources, and sometimes it's a matter of you know political, <laughs> out of our yeah. control things that affect the way that those things happen. Well, I. We all have high regard for you here, so I, I'm, you know, I'm just saying, if they're hiring people like you, they got to be doing something right. <laughs> Thank you, right? Yeah. Thank you. Hey, I mean, I'll yeah. put out a call. I, my personal opinion is that teaching, we need more young people who are willing to stay smart. Right. Yeah. We have a lot of young people who come in for a couple of years and then they head out, but yeah. if we had more people in this area or more people coming to this area and sticking around, yeah. come teach because you're going to meet some amazing kids. You're going to learn more than you ever imagined. And I mean, you guys are from around here. You know how great it is. So yeah. there's literally nothing to lose. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, thank you for doing. It. <laughs> thank you for teaching. No, please. Yeah. Yeah, because it's nice to hear positive news and uh, hear you know meet you know positive people in our school system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So ready to read for us? Yeah, I picked this little selection. It's a few pages long, okay. but I think it gives a pretty vivid example of what this book can be. Okay. Um, and the Example, I'll preface the book by saying that the, uh, the premise of this book is going to a holiday party out of obligation that we've all had to do more than once. And in my mind, that's a version of hell where you're stuck in this place with other individuals and you're forced to perceive yourself through the eyes of someone else. When you look at someone, you know they're looking back at you. So it becomes this weird feedback loop where you're saying, oh my God, not only am I analyzing them, I'm analyzing what they're thinking of me and it becomes this whole thing. So I thought it'd be interesting to hop into individuals' minds 
at one of these holiday parties at when they're at their most stream of consciousness and kind of see where it happens. And at parties, the intimidating thing about them is other people that are there, hence the title. And it also just happened to be a nice little uh, coincidence that Sartre in No Exit has said, hell is other people. Oh, okay. So, no, it kind of yeah. works out that way. So this is a section from um, one of the uh, <clears throat> chapters, or perspectives, I should say. Number seven. <clears throat> An artist sitting at a piano in the hallway outside of a coffee shop trying to be noticed. She paints and paints well, but it doesn't reward her, doesn't feed her what she hungers for. So she sits at the piano and repeats melodies, scribbling notes onto a sheet of paper, forcing creation for the sake of recognition. She wants someone to see her, someone to ask her, wants everyone to know who she is, what she does, and that she has the ability to control it. She isn't her father screaming at his daughters because he was laid off again. She isn't her mother cowering in the corner of the kitchen as her father swings a beer bottle while gesticulating violently on the phone with his biker buddy. <clears throat> she isn't her sister sitting in a preschool classroom holding back tears because she still hasn't found that person she's looking for. She's a product of her creation and her creation alone. Her art. She exists only through her. She wants autonomy and needs recognition of that autonomy. And the harder she tries, the farther away it becomes. He passes by her swinging his keychain, recognizing this, knowing he can give her the satisfaction she craves, knowing that if he makes just one comment, her longing will be relieved, that she'll have found out what it is she's searching for today, and tomorrow, and always. He knows it's a never-ending cycle. He knows that if he feeds in now, he'll feed in again. If not out of genuine want, then out of politeness. And a compliment rooted in politeness is just about as disgusting as a human can get. At least that's what he thinks. Feeling sick, the contents of his stomach now emptied onto his shoes, he looks around. They all stare at him. They all notice him. What is he to them? Who do they think he is? Assumptions that drink motivated the sickness. Conversations about who invited him. Judgments about the way he licks. Who is he to them? What do they think he is? Throwing up in a bathroom five feet wide by ten feet long in August, somewhere after he graduated college. She waits outside for him, scribbling notes on a napkin, longing, wanting, searching for his affection. What is he to her? Who does she think he is? Like a comedic actor who committed suicide that was renowned for his dramatic work, or a dramatic actor turned hat comedian who's renowned for his career decline, or the bisexual method actor, handsomest man in the world, old and crippled by obesity, appearing in the music video of a pedophile, directed by another pedophile, repeating patterns of abuse funded by an excuse for entertainment, the type of people to critique one's taste in movies, the type of people who have no taste, only criticisms, listening to old white liberals argue with other old white liberals about how people who aren't old white liberals should live. Funded by the public, supported by the intellectuals, envied by the unaware, and hated by those awake. Scraping bile off his tongue with the back of his teeth, the artist still works on the piano, waiting for that validation, craving that acknowledgement. An old man so scarred by his emotions, so abused by his wife, so detached from reality that he's become a borderline sociopath, addicted to internet porn, sitting in front of a small Japanese sedan with a 14-year-old boy, also addicted to internet porn, both crying while listening to the same song. The feeling of stirring awake on a beautiful evening and walking down the empty streets of a small Midwestern town. A memory of a drunken partnership, 
tearing into late night sandwiches, all steak and cheese and fat, and stumbling through the Italian district of a dangerous city. A recollection of being alone in the back of a club while wearing gym shorts, eyeing the topless dancers and fingering the wad of cash in his pocket. A too young mother wearing a tight black dress walking her daughter who wears a blue polka dotted dress through an ice cream parlor, requesting vanilla frozen yogurt with strawberries on top. The mother eyes him, tan skin, dark eyes, short, tidy black hair. He can feel his hand sliding up his, her dress. He can see himself tearing her lacy black underwear in half as he pulls them off her. He can see her perfectly made up lips making her way down his chest. He can hear her daughter crying in the other room. He can see her asking her mommy who that big man with black hair was and why he made mommy scream. He envisions them taking her to the local mall, all failing businesses and empty storefronts, and finding a small booth where they can pierce the little girl's ears, operated by some man from the Middle East who doesn't have a driver's license. He sees himself buying her little pearl earrings to match the dress that she wore the first day he met her mommy. The barista with fungus on her arms leans over the counter, showing a balding customer with sunglasses on his head her pushed up cleavage. Stubble between his eyebrows, the faded image of a recently destroyed unibrow. Music still tinkling in the background, something vaguely holiday-related, no words to grab onto, a familiar sensation, lacking the comfortable punctuation of recognition, the type of piece to hum along to without knowing where the melody will lead. Vomit on his feet. To stand up, to walk out, to apologize. They're all looking at him, yet no one approaches. They stare, yet no one moves. Does he announce his embarrassment? Does he laugh? He sees himself taking her strapped heel off and throwing it on the ground beside her bed next to her ripped underwear. He feels himself knocking over the picture frame from her daughter's dance recital as he grabs onto her nightstand for support. He notices her manicure as she grabs onto her pillow and squeezes, chest heaving. They're still looking at him, eyes like the tips of a cigarette. In college, party foul. He stands shaking the bits of rotten food off him and sprints toward the door. Parting the crowd like a tractor rape chain through a wheat field, he runs to find an exit. The fungus arm barista telling the unibrowed man that her cop fiance won't be home until one in the morning. The artist scrawling wildly on sheets of paper, <clears throat> aching for something that never comes. A little girl crying, alone and confused. Give up, give in, tune in, turn on, drop out, all you can eat buffet, seriously. It says that. Stumbling through a crowd smelling of cheap wine, a xenophobic man tries to pickpocket. No, sir, you chose the wrong man. Slamming into the ground, knocking out his teeth, the young mother witnesses this as her daughter hops on a Ferris wheel unaccompanied. When he was really desperate, he did what he had to do to get some cash. He made some mistakes. They all did, right? Stumbling toward a large wooden door, he grasps wildly at the handle, all eyes on him. The frantic, vomiting freak. Who is he to them? What do they think he is? The answer back, crawling under his skin, getting larger, ready to burst. Mice crawling under his skin, his biceps, muscles, mousels. A feeling of separation, when your body and mind divide. Rats and mice and bugs crawling, moving. His arms slam and swing. Sweat sprays, teeth clench. Mascara runs down his mother's cheeks when he picks her up from her friend's house. She has bruises on her neck. His father weeps, picking tomatoes in the backyard, tears saturating the dirt in his raised garden beds. Hands wrapped around the big brass handle of the door, he throws it open, wreath swinging, sending a cascade of pine needles onto the welcome mat in front of him. He falls out of the door onto his knees and looks up into the eyes of a light-skinned woman with hair of brunette turned gray, whose features are, are softer, more welcoming than he has ever seen before. The door slamming shut behind him, he stands up and scans the room. It's a large house, clearly once owned by a family with money. Waiters, antiques, no overhead lighting, crown molding, hardwood floors. 
stained glass at the top of the staircase, a wreath hanging on the heavy wooden door. How perfect, how quaint. Music louder than any one conversation, tables full of uneaten hors d'oeuvres, drinks in hand. It's enough to make any one person sick. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. A lot, of a lot of interesting imagery in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. It's very, uh, yeah. I, I, I've read the book, as you know, before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, it's nice hearing you uh, read it, though. Thank you. Yeah, it brings a different dimension to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always enjoy that as well, hearing someone who's yeah. written something kind of because you can feel their, their, uh, where they put the emphasis. Yeah, exactly. Kind of. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, we um, uh, we held that reading a uh, couple of readings uh, when we did the Howell reading mm -hmm. when everyone read the beat poetry and uh, it that was a good uh, example of that because you're reading someone else's work and you got to interpret it the way you wanted to. Yeah. But you know, here you're interpreting your own. So and that's always nice to hear the writer interpret their own. Yeah. Sometimes it, it's. Um, I'd rather hear the writer read his stuff than talk about his stuff, because mm -hmm. then sometimes when they talk about it, it takes away some of the mystery. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. or if they read it, it just enhances it. So, well, thank you very much. Thank you. And no, no problem. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add for to our listeners about Domesticated Primate Publishing Company? And so you're still looking for submissions, right? All yeah, time, that's you know? actually a good thing yeah. to say. I'm um, I'm currently trying to do a compilation of two screenplays. Okay. Uh, one of which I wanted to pair with a local artist doing um, storyboarding for it, oh, okay. and the other screenplay I'd like to have local artists do a soundtrack for. Okay. So. So I'm looking for anybody who's written a screenplay, preferably film more than television. So full-length screenplay in screen pages about between 90 and 120 right. pages, or okay. if anybody is thinking about doing that, okay. reach out and I can help you. And have you got the artists? You're looking for the artists too? I'm looking for artists okay. yep, as oh, well. Cool. And uh, yeah. even anybody who has an idea they think might be cool. I'm, I'm interested in working with almost any artist who wants to do something that has to do with the written word and combining mixed media too. Okay. Well, before I let you go, uh, um, I just want to uh, ask you, uh, still doing music? Yeah, yeah. a little okay. bit here okay. and there. I have a, a few bit. people yeah. who, I, who I play with. Um, I was in a couple bands for a long time. Mm -hmm. I got to play in a lot of cool places in New York and Philly, a lot in Boston, in this area too. But um, I haven't really played with them too much recently. But um, I've been doing, you know, some stuff more for me, like personal recordings okay. and, you know, just kind of working some ideas out. Yeah. It's a fun part about doing these podcasts is you learn so much about someone. So, you know, I primarily, of course, to me, you're a writer mm -hmm. and a publisher. And today we talked about your teacher, a mm -hmm. physics teacher, and musician. Yeah. Something else I didn't know. So thanks for coming in, Nick. No, thanks for having me. Okay. Recorded at Groundwork Co-working Space.